Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. Our guest today is Matthew Marriott. Matthew is a British explorer, researcher, and geographer. He is a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society and a fellow of the Royal Asiatic Society. His expeditions include walking across Queensland, Australia, traversing the Sahara on camel, and retracing his great-great-grandfather's Challenger expedition to Christmas Island in the Indian Ocean. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me on, Michael. Um, great to be on the show. You come from a long line of famous explorers and are carrying on in that tradition with expeditions around the world. But before we get to them, we have a traditional icebreaker. Do you have a good drinking story for us? I absolutely have. I have a couple of drinking stories, but I think I'm going to use the one when I was in the Sahara. So I just arrived uh, on the edge of the Moroccan Sahara. We just put our equipment down in the, in some Berber tents, and there was another um, no, a couple who were there, and um, a Norwegian couple, and it turned out that they were actually ski expeditioners in um, the Arctic in Norway, and and they just decided that they sort of wanted to contrast the Sahara with the kind of, I guess, the cold desert of the Arctic and the, the ice that's up in the Arctic. So, um, and he, he just said to me, you know, there's one thing that's very difficult traveling around North Africa. So I said, you know, what is that? And he said, I just really, really miss having a beer. So we'd luckily, um, we had a really good guide with us. Um, from the Atlas Mountains, he travelled with us all, all over Morocco, and um, he knew of the only place to buy beer near the Sahara. So, and um, we picked up a few beers. We had this sort of magical evening under the, the canopy of the stars in the Sahara, and um, drinking this Casablanca beer. It was just a fantastic uh, moment, and just hearing hearing stories about the Arctic. Funnily enough, even though we're in the Sahara, which is quite unusual. But really, um, you know, an unusual place to um, to have have a drink with someone, and um, a fantastic back backdrop to uh, you know clinking beers together. So, yeah, very cool. Yeah, that's a long, long way from the Arctic. Yeah, <laughs> a long way. Yeah, exploration is in your blood. Uh, you have a family going back many generations that have been involved in exploration, adventure, scientific study abroad. A couple I'd like to ask you about is Sir John Murray and Captain J.P.R. Marriott. Tell us about those folks. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's always been um, something in my family that we've had. Um, Sir John Murray is he's my great-great-grandfather, and he was really a sort of pioneer in scientific pioneer and that he was he's, he's called um certainly in the uk he's called the the founding father of oceanography they set off on you know the sort of world famous challenger expedition 
The Challenger expedition travelled all around the world um, surveying the oceans. Challenger Deep, um, which you may have heard of in the Mariana Trench, is the deepest point in on, on an ocean and Earth, and that was um, you know discovered by my great great grandfather. And um, they once they returned to the UK, they shared the scientific work, but they 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 collected they collected hundreds hundreds, if not thousands, of specimens from all around the world and greatly enriching our understanding of the natural world. You know, just incredible figure um, alongside all those other characters like Darwin, who um, went all around the world seeking, you know, to enrich our scientific understanding of it. So part of of that is... um, he came across an island called Christmas Island, which is in the Indian Ocean, which is just south of sort of Jakarta and north of um, Perth in Australia. So, and I'll probably talk a little bit more about Christmas Island later on. And then again, my great grandfather, um, who married the daughter of Sir John Murray, um, my Captain Marriott, um, he was another. He travelled the world through the Navy, and um, after he retired from the Navy, he had various diplomatic roles um, around the world, including in Egypt and Japan. So just in- incredible uh, sort of tales of travel and sort of exploration that passed two generations of my family um, in very different eras, you know, completely different worlds to, you know, what we have in the present day, you know, going on back hundreds of years. But it's... Um, it's greatly shaped, um, you know, yearning to travel and, you know, as times have changed massively so much, but the, you sort of, I think it's a, a shared thing throughout humanity that you have this burning desire to travel and explore and kind of, um, you know, interact with parts of the world that enrich your knowledge of the world. So, uh, yeah. It's in your blood. Absolutely. Absolutely. Your journey started with an around-the-world trip. And during that trip, it took you to Australia and Queensland. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I was um, I was very young at the time, and it was really my first foray after, after doing many exams to my education at school and so on. And so I, I went on an around-the-world trip of circumnavigation, um, taking me to all kinds of places, including China and the Far East, and then um, then later Australia. And um, Australia is really where I, I really do feel that about Australia, that it's this, you could spend your whole life traveling around Australia. There's so much there. I mean, it's a, it's a, the landmass of Australia is about the same size as Europe, and there's just so much to explore there, and so much diverse biodiversity in the wildlife, and it's just an incredible place. Um, but when when I was at that age, I actually became deeply interested in the Aboriginal First Nations people um, and some of the wildlife in the Queensland area. And Queensland is sort of northeast Australia, um, and there's a, a stretch of land called um, Mission Beach. And in Mission Beach is uh, the traditional owners of that area, the traditional people of the area were the Jiri people and the Jiri had an incredible way of living that they discovered a way of um, effectively paralyzing fish to catch them. So um, there's a, there's a, um, some bark and sap from a, um, a tree called the milky pine tree. 
And if you use that bark and sap and throw it into the water, temporarily paralyzes the fish. So um, that this is sort of, you know, like the fishing technique that the, the jury people had, which is unique to the area. And uh, just incredible, um, you know, cultural heritage there. The rainforest is incredible in that area of Mission Beach as well. The cassowary, I was, I was fascinated. So the cassowary for the audience um, is this is the largest um, land bird in Australia. And it's like a very large emu with a sort of velociraptor-like claw. And um, if you confront it at the wrong the wrong time, it can, can be absolutely fatal. But it's um, you have to be very cautious if you see one. And they are quite rare now, but it's uh, it's an incredible bird, and um, not a bird you'll forget if you see one. So, but it's uh, but an incredible area of Australia, very incredible biodiversity in the rainforest, and um, just a very uh, wonderful way of interacting with that part of part of Queensland uh, with the Jiri people. So, um, I think we talked about. Previously, Michael, we talked about, you know, the um, the First Nations belief in the dream world. Yeah, so, yeah, so the dream world um, is this sort of is um, difficult for someone who's not an Aboriginal person to understand, but it's um, effectively um, dream time existed since time began. And um, there were spirits that created the, the rivers, streams, waterholes, and the layout of lay of the land and um the ancestors to the aboriginal people passed the knowledge through many generations the dream dream world is is this sort of um the beginning of time that created this successive um development of knowledge and passing down the knowledge from the ancestors to the present um aboriginal people so it's incredibly important culturally and spiritually and uh, the other thing, songlines. So songlines are these geographical places and, and journeys that the Aborigines can make, can be sung, and they have a, um, there are rituals connected with the singing of um, the journey between different geographical places. And it's an incredibly, um, you know, different perspective from, you know, say so the Western philosophy um, and just a very very rich and um, bold view of the of the world and the creation of the world that that um, this really struck me as a young kind of traveller that I, I was really amazed by the the Jiru and and the stories they told and the way they interacted with the land and the, the, their beliefs about the land. So yeah, it's a very very much a, um, an early beginning kind of way but it really struck me um it's an incredible part of australia and of the world and to get a glimpse into their spiritual beliefs and practices with the dream world that must have been really something yeah i mean i i think it's um it's if you've seen um so you know you're just going onto the internet you can uh research the dream world and sort of um paintings and illustrations of the dream world by the aboriginal first nations people and um, just some incredible things there. So, you know, like illustrations of the sky at night and things and this kind of intertwining of astronomy with the dream world and things like that, just the incredible 
and some incredible art there. And, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a very interesting concept and, um, yeah, one I definitely recommend reading up on. Fascinating. You speak many languages. One of them is Arabic and you went to Cairo to live. Tell us about that. Already mentioned, um, my great grandfather, Captain Marriott was, um, very much involved in a diplomatic sense with Egypt. I, I guess I could describe it at first. Um, so there's a Nobel um, Prize winner for literature called Neguib Mahfouz, and he wrote a famous quote that being in Cairo is like being in the middle of nowhere and everywhere. And it's, it's you, if you've been to Cairo, you kind of you, you know what they you know what Neguib Mahfouz means by that. It's um, it's kind of it's such a huge bustling city it's one of the it's the largest city in africa i stayed in um Handasin, which is a means engineers in arabic um and it was traditionally where the engineers and professionals would live in cairo i i worked as a teacher and in through that i was teaching people from all over the middle east north africa and east africa it was really a fascinating insight into like the, the sort of linguistic variety in in Africa and the Middle East and just um, being able to, I, I spent a lot of time learning Arabic and um, also picked up some other dialects like Tigrinian, um, Amarek, and just, just some very interesting dialects that had come from all over that region. And it was just, uh, Egyptology fascinated me. So um, I visited many, many tombs. Um, I mean, the, the Great Pyramids and the Sphinx are, are, you know, the obvious ones that people visit. But there's a lot of, lot of other sites uh, not too far from Cairo, which are um, incredibly interesting from an Egypt, Egyptology perspective. Um, and the building where I worked um, was also where the Egypt Exploration Society was based. And they, they've got like, um, you know, the best Egyptologists from, um, sort of Western Europe, um, working there and also e Egyptian Egyptologists sort of, who, who work alongside each other and sort of, um, recording, you know, the sort of latest developments in Egyptology. So, um, it's an incredible, it's an incredible place to be and, uh, very, you know, very different time when it was uh, sort of Mubarak era, I was there. And it was just before the Arab Spring. So there was tension um, in some parts of Egyptian society. And, but, you know, there was a lot of good stuff as well there. So it was, it was kind of an interesting time to be there. I bet it was. While you were there, my understanding is you had an interesting experience visiting a pyramid. Yeah, I so um, I went to visit the pyramids, and um, the Egyptian army kindly allowed me allowed me to climb up um, several steps of the of the Great Pyramid uh, for some photographs because they you know they want to ensure that tourists have a great time, and if you ask them politely and, and if it's the right day to do it, they um, they will help you out. Um, so. Being on the on the, the Great Pyramid, it has this incredible. Um, I mean, it's a it's a symbol recognised throughout the world. It has this incredible kind of, I guess, sort of it's this iconic mark of civilization, and it, it's um, it's 
it has I, I i can't quite describe exactly what i mean but i think it has it's not like standing on stone it's like you're standing on something monumental in history that there's something um you know incredible about being on that monument i was very privileged that the egyptian army allowed me to to walk up it and um and you know take some photographs but it's um you know, it is an incredible place. And, um, you know, if, if you find yourself in Egypt and, um, the, the tourism police or the, the army are willing, then, uh, ask them for a photograph because it's a, it's a really magical experience being on such a historic, um, you know, piece of civilization. Quite a privilege. You've traveled quite extensively. Have there ever been occasions when? It was high danger, and you, you almost didn't make it back. So I think, you know, I share this with all people that have traveled um, and, you know, a lot of the world, and it's um, there's been several occasions where that sort of thing has happened. So um, just, uh, you know, like things like road safety issues, so being on mountain roads when you've got – you're going in one direction, someone's coming fast in the other direction, and you have to veer – around them or maybe you don't veer around them maybe you collide or maybe one of you goes off the side of the mountain and that's and that's a big fear especially the atlas mountains in morocco that was a big fear um and it was a very i mean i was with a guide and he said inshallah and just god that was his insurance policy and it was quite quite risky um going on those mountain roads but uh, more other sort of to contrast that so um, I've been in sort of protests and riots in the sort of MENA region where it's been, you know, very, you get caught up in it and you're trying to get out, but it's not easy to find a way out. And it's, it can get, you know, those sort of situations, you, they're not, they're not predictable. It's not like someone knows when these things are always going to happen, but it's kind of, you've just got to, keep your wits about you and move to a place of safety as soon as possible. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm being very fortunate and, um, I've, yeah, I've, I guess I, I made it through those times, but that's, that's, you know, that is in the nature of adventure and exploration and travel that you, you do find these situations present themselves. Um, but it's getting through to a place of safety and minimizing the risk. So minimizing the risk of those situations that is, you know, essential to having a successful trip or an ex successful expedition. Take us to Christmas Island. Yeah. So Christmas Island. Um, so just picking up on that in my, my great, great grandfather, um, they were on the Challenger expedition and they came past Christmas Island and um they yeah he he found a lot of made some scientific discoveries of the types of materials on the island um and my yeah my family sort of had a connection to the island for for a long long time and so i just before the pandemic i, I went out there to visit it i'd heard about these places that were named after members of my family and i'd also had it, it was just an incredible island with such a rich rich more biodiversity so it's a um christmas island is in the indian ocean it's south of indonesia north of perth and it's effectively a volcanic spike coming out of the ocean floor 
And because it's a volcanic spike, um, many of the species of animals and um, plants are have evolved independently from other, say, Indonesia or Australia. So you get all these endemic species, um, like the golden basin, which is only found on Christmas Island. And the golden basin, which is on the, the flag for Christmas Island, is this incredibly beautiful tropical bird. Um, and my view is one of the most it's one of the most beautiful birds in the world. So if you, if anyone does go to Christmas Island, um, do you try and catch uh, a glimpse of the Golden Basin? But, um, you know, I was there in walking through the rainforest. So we, we you travel everywhere by four-wheel drive. And I was there in the rainforest um, looking at these giant trees, which um, are unique to Christmas Island. Um, looking up at the canopy of the rainforest and then looking down again at my feet and seeing um, thousands of red crab going through the rainforest towards the ocean. The, the thing that, you know, sort of uh, nature programs will film um, this crab migration that goes on in Christmas Island. And there's about, I think it's something like 60 million red crab and take over the island at the, the, the end of the year. So um, they go to the sea, they spawn their babies, and then they return inland. And um, you, there's no way you can go without seeing a crab at this time of year. So it's like um, it's done on the lunar calendar. And uh, when when the moon rises, um, they, they go and lay their babies in the in the ocean. So it's, um, it's just an incredible sight. It's a natural wonder. And it's... Um, it's a unique place, and it's it's kind of you can sit on a veranda overlooking overlooking a moonlit sea at night, and there'll be all the, the red crab will be around your feet, walking around your feet and stuff. And if you don't shut the door to your house, you're going to have red crab <laughs> following you, <laughs> following inside as well. So it's um it's a very unique place, but it is incredibly worthwhile visiting, and there's somewhere I'll be visiting again soon. How did it feel stepping in the same place as Sir John Murray? Yeah, well, it's, it's incredible, really, because, uh, they, I mean, they traveled around so much of the world in a sort of a, a 19th century boats. And to have come across Christmas Island in that day, it would have been quite a sight. Um, it was uninhabited. It never been had any uh, human. It was just the crabs and... You know, that was pretty much it on the island they would have seen. So no development, no human interaction with the island. Yes, it's just, for me to visit there as his great-great-grandson. Um, and um, it's just incredible to learn, you know, the founding of the island, the human settlement on the island, the development over from the 18th, to, uh, from 19th to the uh, 20th century you know, into the 21st century, but it's, um, you know, there are place names named after John Murray. Um, so Murray Road um, is, a, is a major road on the island. And um, there's Margaret Knoll, which is a beautiful place to watch um, golden basins, which I mentioned earlier, and bird watching generally. So frigate birds are another great site on the island. And um, it's a beautiful viewpoint above the rainforest. And um, that's Margaret Knoll. It's named after my great grandmother. And there's a beach named after um, a great aunt as well. So it's just that it's um, a very unique place to my family, but it's a, it's incredible biological treasure as well. It's, um, it's just a fantastic place. And I think 
as a naturalist, my great great grandfather would have just been in awe of that island. It would have been, you know, in that era, in the Darwinian era, just to find somewhere with all these unique species of um, plants and and you know flora and fauna. Um, just an incredible island to find. Sounds like the Galapagos of the Indian Ocean. Yeah, I think it has been called that. Yeah, certainly, and it's it is it's just an incredible place. Were there any other strange animals that you saw there? So there's lots of there's a robber crab. So the red crabs are the ones that take over the island due to migration. But there's a robber crab, and they're also known as the coconut crab because they can crush coconuts with their claws. They got very big claws, and um, and they are they they aren't unique to Christmas Island. They are found you know over I think but I believe in the Pacific and other places as well. But it's um, they're these huge crabs, and when you cross one, they're quite phenomenal that these large robber crabs that appear in front of you with these huge claws and uh <laughs> you know they're kind of they're very slow which is fortunate so they're very slow moving so if they but they, you know if, you, if they got your sort of arm or leg in the grasp of their claw they probably they probably break it so it's um it's not to be taken too lightly and they, they are protected actually on the island so when you're driving on a road because there are 60 million red crabs it's inevitable that you might drive over one or two of them, but the robber crab you have to avoid at all costs because it's a protected species on the island. So, um, but it's a formidable crab. <laughs> I want to switch gears. Let's talk about British exploration. You have people like Sir Richard Burton, Ernest Shackleton. I mean, there is just a depth of explorers that Britain has produced including your own relatives. How would you compare Burton, Speak, Shackleton, Murray to today's explorers? Well, I think it's, um, you know, different eras, different times and different um, circumstances. And I think, you know, today it's, uh, we're, we're a more globalized world. So I think, you know, you don't have to be suddenly British or European to be uh, to explore. You can be from anywhere on the, in the in the world, from any any people, and you can you can go and explore. But it's um, you know so that's that's the big change. But it's the other thing I'd say is that I think you know exploration is a human human endeavor, and it's um, it's something that binds all all human beings that we have this yearning to discover more and to find out more. And I think. Um, the explorers today are covering a lot of different issues. So, for example, Shackleton, you know, the polar explorers of old were trying to to reach the the furthest extremes known to that have been uh, physically reached by humankind. But today, we're looking at things like the the challenges of climate change. You know, the effects. So, people there. Uh, polar scientists going to the polar regions, measuring the melting of glaciers, the melting of um, polar ice. They're they're making discoveries and they're contributing to science, but they're not pushing the physical endurance boundaries that the, you know the old polar explorers like Shackleton were. And so, yeah, it's different. And you know, there's there's still there's still some great um, you know, the ocean, there's so much to be explored in the ocean. There's so little we know about large swathes of the ocean. And there's a lot lot going into ocean exploration. 
And then we've got space, and um, you know that's beyond men, the, the large majority. 99% of the population aren't going to get to experience that in our generations. But it's um, you know there's still space is like a huge. So I think you know that's something in the, the days of Speak and Shackleton and Richard Francis Burton. Um, you know, space just wasn't even a consideration. But now. You know, we look. At, we're putting astronauts into space, finding out so much more scientifically and in, in outside of our own planet. And I think that's, um, you know, how how exploration has changed so much in um, in 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 those centuries. But um, yeah, with all that though, as individuals, is there really any difference between Burton and the explorers such as yourself now? So I think. I think what Richard Francis Burton, the great gift he had was to question what was considered, you know, socially acceptable and to actually question our opinions of various parts of the world and the people in them that, you know, say um, he was out there, he was exploring, he was meeting people, he was finding new geographical areas and he was coming back to um, you know, Victorian Britain, and there were societal expectations of what he would say about these places, but he actually challenged a lot of ideas and pushed forward, you know, geographical knowledge and sort of anthropo anthropological knowledge as well. So it was kind of, but it's, it's a different era, and there's many of his views were would be deemed unacceptable today, but it's, um, I, think, um, I think there's still a thing in, it, you know, if you're into traveling, exploring, um, uh, you know, pursuing an adventure, then it, it's about, you know, in the same – through all generations, all centuries, you have to have that, um, you know, questioning something so you can discover something. So um, don't go out somewhere expecting to find everything you thought you would find. You know, find look for something new, look to discover something. And it always opens up our worldview, allows us to, to question, I guess, things that we always assumed and find out that it's not 100% correct and allow us to, to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, the future of exploration, and this goes to a particular expertise of yours, artificial intelligence. How do you think that's going to affect the future of exploration? So I think that's one of the exciting things about being in the 21st century. So, um, you know, there's m many, you know, many generations of travelers and explorers, expeditioners are looking, have asked questions about the world or asked questions about history. So they, they may want to rediscover something, um, but we haven't had it within our grasp um, to find things. So things have just gone unfound and we haven't been able to, discover locations of historical events. So um, with artificial intelligence, it's it's now within our grasp to use um, tools such as machine learning to collect, we can collect data and then we can predict where the likely places of maybe a historical figure, historical tomb, a resting place of a famous historical figure might be that we weren't able to do before. So. And just one example of that is um, the the burial place of Genghis Khan. And, you know, this this is a huge mystery and it's never, no one's 
got close to finding it. But, you know, with breakthroughs in artificial intelligence and with the ability to assimilate data of things like where, where Genghis Khan's um, travel routes were, where he was resting, um, you know, where his um, troops would rest, it becomes easier to create a picture of a likely resting place. So, you know, archaeologically, AI can really change things, and it's a really exciting time to be in um, that, you know, opens up these things. And there are other examples as well. So glyph reading. So traditionally, you'd have um, a handful of, ex of um, hieroglyph experts in either Mayan glyphs or Egyptian, ancient Egyptian glyphs, he would be able to read, um, read like the inside of a tomb. But with AI, you can now do image recognition. And, um, you know, even using your mobile phone, you can read some of these glyphs and go through a huge um, thousands of, of glyphs um, to identify the correct translation on, on the, the inside of a tomb. So it's really exciting technology. There's lots of possibilities and there's lots of um, universities and societies all around the world that are starting to embrace this and doing some really exciting expeditions. So, um, yeah, really cool. Fascinating. What lessons have uh, What lessons have you learned through all of your explorations, your travels? I think um, you, it's just to have a clear idea of what you're trying to achieve. So. You know, if you're trying to discover something completely new, if you're trying to rediscover something, so some ancient knowledge that might have been passed down through generations of a tribe that you, you're trying to understand, and um, um, it might be the re rediscovering a historical moment, but it's, it's just having a clear idea in your travel or your expedition or um, an adventure, you know, have a clear idea set out of what you're trying to achieve and how it's going to benefit, you know, your community, you know, maybe your your country, maybe the world, the you know, the academic world. If um, you know you're you've got academic training, so it's kind of having a clear idea of what you're trying to achieve, and and then that kind of makes everything fit together more nicely and gives purpose. Um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of people that it's it, it's just you, you want to have an adventure, but there's no purpose there. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's nice sometimes to have that, that adrenaline rush on a trip or canoeing down a river. But if you give it purpose, if you give it a scientific, re, um, a scientific kind of, you know, you're trying to make a discovery for, for the betterment of science, um, it really kind of elevates your your ability to explore, ability to travel, ability to reach out to other parts of the world that have different perspectives and can enrich our own. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, I think that's, a, that's the main learning I have. <laughs> How would you compare yourself from the days, the early days when you were walking through Queensland, trying to avoid the Queensland Velociraptor and yourself now? How would you compare those two people? Well, I think there's, I think, um, you know, I've got this thing about having a holistic view of your travel. So 
I think when you're when you're very young, as everybody is when they're young, um, there's lots of um, you know there might be a lot of selfies and there might be a lot of star jumps in, in on nice locations and things. And you, you know, as young people do when you're a late teenager, early twenty something. Um, but as you get older, you start to with, the more you travel, you start to see the whole picture of what's going on. So you might see um, a bustling tourist industry, but then you see um, other parts of the the community that are suffering that you hadn't kind of, you know, that not everyone is seeing. So it's getting a holistic idea of the picture and being respectful of where you are, but also observing, you know, that kind of whole, that whole, um, the, you know, what's really going on here and what are, what are some learnings? You know, I've, I've traveled across the world to this place and what can I learn from it and what can I, bring home and share with my colleagues and my contemporaries about this area. So, yeah, I think that's, um, I think that's the big difference from being young when you're very blissfully ignorant of really the whole picture of what's going on to having that eternal optimism and actually getting older and actually seeing a, a, a you know, a big cross section of, of, you know, the place you're in. So I think that's the, a big um, learning for, uh, you know, getting, getting older as a traveler. <laughs> now what's coming up next for you? So I actually, um, in the, in the immediate future, sort of early next year, I'm, I'm going to some Etruscan, um, uh, sort of the sites of some Etruscan towns and villages in, um, just near Bologna in Italy. So, um, so Richard Francis Burton documented them and he was a diplomat in the region and um there's just an incredible amount about the etruscans that i'd like to discover and um some some great academics um who work at local museums in bologna as well who i want to meet up with so that's um that's the kind of next step later next year i really i really want to um do something in um northern india and nepal in the himalayas so that's kind of um that's kind of a bigger trip it's going to take a lot more planning but um yeah and when's that going to happen so i it's probably october to december next year so that's um sort of i want the, i want the you get all the blue skies in nepal at that time of year so it's um yeah it's it's kind of the preference at the moment for folks who want to follow you and your, your travels and the things that you learn, where can they do that? So um, the probably the easiest um, so is to visit my Linktree page. So um, either you can go on Instagram. So my Instagram handle is Matthew Marriott. So it's M-A-T-T-H-E-W-M-A-R-R-I-O-T-T. Uh, so Matthew Marriott, that's my Instagram handle. And uh, there's a link on there, a Linktree link, which will link you to all uh, things like podcasts, um, lectures that I'm giving in the UK, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, my Linktree handle is, um, so it's uh, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E uh, forward slash uh, Matthew Marriott, um, same spelling as the Instagram. So um, if you visit either of those, um, you know, if you visit me on Instagram, um, you can keep up with uh sort of the latest projects and trips and stuff and, um, you know, reach out and, um, yeah. Any final thoughts? 
No, just um, just great to um, great to get in contact um, with you, Michael, and uh, thanks so much for having me on the show. And it's an incredible show. Um, I've seen some of the other and um, uh, some other fellows of the Royal Geographic Society on previous episodes, um, which I, I've listened to, and um, just uh, incredible podcast show and, and series, and just uh, just a huge uh, range of you know some incredible stories there. So thanks so much. Well, thank you. Well, Matthew, I hope to have you back after a few more of your ventures and especially to hear about, about Indian and about the Etruscans. Thanks very much, Michael. Thank you. All right. We'll see you down the road. Okay. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world. <laughs>